Rusty Quill presents. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. Previously, on Scars in Time. On the other side of the rough wall, Ash finds the burned-out remnants of the doctor's life's work, if not the doctor himself. After discovering his old notes, Ash hears the sounds of a typewriter crashing above her, and is slid through into a parallel reality where Mike Colon is still alive, and has been rebuilding the doctor's legacy. Trapped in Ashley Colin's version of reality, Ash is forced to kill Mike for a second time in her life, on this occasion with some help from her agent, Su Yin. A victory for sure, but not one that can solve the rapidly deteriorating situation in Gun Cotton. With few other options, Ash decides to make a phone call to the one person in town who might be able to help. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 18 The Painting It wasn't long until Bobby knocked on the front door. Su Yin and I had sat in silence on either side of Mike's body holding vigil as though he might spring back to life at any moment. Neither of us had anything to say, at least not yet. The only sounds in the house were our heavy breaths, which slowed as the shock of what we'd done came and went. The knocking startled both of us. Bobby stood outside, Sean in tow. The boy had a dire expression that I realized was mostly sickness and a little caution. Black flecks riddled the spaces around his mouth. Bobby stood in the doorway a moment longer before leaning toward me. Mind inviting me in? He asked. Are you some kind of vampire now? I asked, feeling more snippy than I should. House's rules, not mine. He said with a lightly threatening smile. I told him to come in and stepped aside. Sean followed walking around Mike's body and shaking his head. We should probably leave the other kids out of this one, he said. He looked Mike over and then pushed his chin to the side with the toe of his shoe. The boy seemed immeasurably tired. You two did this? Wow. He'd glanced at Su Yin when he'd asked the question. 
She gave him an incredulous look. Aren't you a child? She asked. Why are you here? Legally, I guess, Sean said. He knelt down beside Mike and started rifling through his pockets, tossing aside the dead man's wallet, phone, and an embossed pocket watch I'd never seen before. You ever kill anybody before? No, Su Yin said, voice aghast. Welcome to the club, then, Sean replied. He found what he was searching for and tossed it to Bobby, a black key that looked like it had survived a dozen house fires. I touched my pocket, checking for my own key, but I didn't have it. I thought about protesting and demanding Bobby turn the one in his hand over to me, but I had a strong feeling that key wasn't mine. He looked it over and slipped it into his pocket. What do we do about him? Sean asked. He's your husband, Bobby said, turning to me. You want him buried publicly or should he just disappear? Holy shit, Suyen said, standing up and running her hands through her hair several times. He's not my husband, I snapped at Bobby. He gave me a long, hard look as though he was just seeing me. He's not? Suyin asked, looking at me. Then who even the fuck is he? Why the fuck am I still here? She said that last bit to herself and started walking toward the door. I touched her shoulder and she shrugged me off. She'd have made it out, but Bobby stepped in front of her. Please get out of my way, she said, not looking at his face. He stared at me. The town is my only priority, ever, he said. How this gets solved is up to the both of you, for better or worse, but it will be getting solved. He pointed Su Yin back into the house and she obeyed the order, though she looked terrified. Jesus fucking Christ, I am never coming to West Virginia again, she said. It's not normally like this, I told her. Sean started laughing to himself. He was undressing Mike's corpse and piling the clothes beside the body. I hope you know I'm not representing your fucking book anymore, she said. I should just call the fucking police. He's the mayor, I said, pointing to Bobby. He was standing over Sean and watching him work. Su Yin buried her hands in her hair and pinched at her roots. Fuck, she said. I'm going to die. You'll be fine, I told her. I thought for a long moment. I know it doesn't seem like it, but you can trust me on that. You can trust him too. I nodded toward Bobby. He looked over at me and raised an eyebrow. I don't know you, she said. We don't know each other. And this is the first time we met in person. I helped you fucking fucking murder a man and now these two are going to dispose of the body who wears a red suit like that is he a bond villain he's got a little albino boy soldier doing his fucking bidding i laughed you want me to blow your mind i asked we actually do know each other she just glared at me nine cups Suyin looked at me like an idiot for a long second and then realization dawned on her face. Her eyes were wide. No, 
she said in a harsh whisper. No fucking way. Nine cups, I repeated. Ten dishes, she said. Without a breath, she continued. Four cats, three dogs, I answered. She covered her mouth with her hands. How the fuck do you know that? She asked. Thirty spiders. Thirty-one tarantulas? I offered. Does that even count? Yes, she said. Technically, how the fuck do you know that? In a different time and place, you taught it to me. After that psycho tried to drag you into his car in Bushwick, I said. She took a deep breath and her eyes darted around the house, not really looking, just sort of trying to grab on to something visually solid enough to ground her. Fuck, she said. I'm dead, or I'm dreaming. She shook her head. How do you know all that? We know each other, I said, looking around and pointing to the ground. Just not here. In a different life, you've been my agent for more than two decades. You published my first book, Skull Crickets. She shook her head. That's a good title, she said. Fiction? Nonfiction, I said. But like all the best nonfiction, it's kind of sort of made up. Fuck off. That's my... That's my line, Suyin said. That's my cell line for spicing up boring nonfiction books. She buried her face in her hands. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I know you. You know me. Whatever. Now what? I don't know, I said. Just don't call the police or freak out or anything. You hungry still? Her eyes were exhausted when she looked at me. Yes. I made her an egg sandwich in the kitchen and she sat at the prep table and ate in silence, holding on to the massive glass of milk I'd poured her like an anchor. Bobby and Sean had managed to wrap the body in a thick coating of bed sheets. They had also moved it toward the center of the room and cleaned up the puddle of nightmarishly foul-smelling urine Mike had produced post-mortem. What are you guys going to do with that? I asked. Bobby gave me a look and I pointed at him. Don't give me any of that. Do you really want to know shit? Tell me. You ever been in the sewers under Old Town? Sean asked. I shook my head. There's some things down there that'll eat anything. So long as it's dead. Isn't he a senator or something, though? I asked. Bobby chuckled. How do you not know that? He turned to me. To answer your question, people go missing all the time, even senators. But things that go lost here tend to stay lost, unless it's people from here doing the looking. You ladies killed the memory of him. He sighed. I thought a senator in town would be a real benefit. Shows what the fuck I know. We told you he was weird, Sean said, looking down at the bundle of dead Mike. All politicians are weird, kid, Bobby said, crossing his arms and looking around the house. But even I have to make friendly with them to get my way. 
I took a breath. Do you know what's in the basement? I asked. Bobby and Sean shared a glance and then looked at me. Bobby shrugged. Well, I think it's an easier solution for what to do with him than dumping him in the sewers. You say that, Bobby said. Just pick him up and follow me, I said. Hey. Hey, you. There's new merch in the merch store. So go fucking buy some, you hear me? You wanna, you wanna fucking shirt, bro? You want a sick fucking shirt, bro? Go to the fucking merch store and check out our new shirt. It's a collage of all that pretty artwork Mr. Yui puts together for season four. Fucking beautiful. You want to be fucking beautiful, don't you? Then go buy a shirt. You want to stay fucking beautiful? You better buy two fucking shirts. You better buy a fucking mug, too, and a fucking beanie. Don't let me find out you aren't wearing the merch. You better go to westsidefairytales.com slash merch and buy something. Yeah. Westsidefairytales.com slash merch. See you soon. Now back to our story already in progress. I led them into the kitchen, where Su Yin watched in silent horror as I fumbled my way through opening the massive dumbwaiter that now took up the wall where the original sink had been. It finally opened and Su Yin yelped. I heard her stand up and turned to find her pacing with her hands on her hips, silently shaking her head and glancing at the elevator. How about that? Bobby said, voice colored with wonder. There was already a stretcher waiting in the thing. Its mattress was covered over in rust-brown stains. That's a fucking corpse elevator? Suyin said. My god, Ash, you had me eating right here! I looked over at her and shrugged. I wondered if she'd noticed she'd used the short version of my name that only my friends used. For a brief moment, I felt those cords of air tightening on my face. Unfamiliar, tense and grasping, restrictive. Then they were gone. I think I'm starting to like this house even less than some of the others in Old Town, Sean said under his breath as I shut the huge, counterweighted silver doors. I turned the key on the right side of the thing to on, and the down button lit up. I pressed it and the elevator whined to life, rumbling the kitchen slightly as it lowered its load into the basement. Fucking wild, Bobby said under his breath. He looked at Sean. You hate this place even more than number seven? I didn't say that, Sean muttered. He turned to me. Is that the basement? I nodded and led them downstairs, jokingly turning back to Su Yin. You want to come with us? I asked. She gave me the finger and I smiled. Despite the day so far, I was feeling pretty good. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow, what a great story. But I have no fucking idea what's going on in it to you. Maybe it'd be a little easier understand if I had access to a, a written version of the show to follow along with and read back through. Maybe even some, I, I don't know, behind the story information to clear up some of my, my fucking questions. Oh, wait, right there. Yes, <laughs> it says right there. Join the West Side Fairy Tales Patreon today and get access to behind the story audio programs and fully laid out chapters of this story, Scars in Time and most of the West Side Fairy Tales back catalog for just five measly dollars a month. Wow, what a deal. Oh, it even says here you can get special merch packs and signed posters if you give a a, a more generous donation. Uh, that means he needs your money, people. This isn't a fucking charity. Okay, go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today and subscribe for excellent behind-the-story content and more. That's patreon.com slash Westside Fairy Tales. Link is in the description. And don't forget to watch my show if it's for. Ah, come on! I'm not doing this for free! Now back to our story, already in progress. The elevator was in position by the time we got downstairs. Sean slid open the doors and pushed the stretcher himself. It moved awkwardly through the receptionist's office, requiring numerous adjustments. The space clearly wasn't set up for this kind of movement yet. It was like a roach motel, built for creatures healthy enough to walk into it that wouldn't be walking back out. I shivered. Hello? A man called from the back of the clinic when we stepped through the gate. I hadn't locked it, but somehow that hadn't stopped Bobby from opening the thing. Sean wheeled the cart inside, and I followed. The scientist or doctor or whatever from before was hanging half out of the office at the far left end of the clinic. Oh my, he said, shutting the door when he saw Bobby. I couldn't see Bobby's expression, but the way he adjusted his shoulders and cracked his neck spoke volumes. There's an incinerator down through that hatch right there in the middle, I said, pointing. Sean wheeled the stretcher in that direction and then set about trying to find a way to open it. Eventually, he found a switch on the wall that made some unseen mechanicals rumble beneath our feet. The diamond plate doors in the hatch opened like wings and a platform raised up flush with the floor. How about that? Sean asked, nobody in particular. He started to push the stretcher and had to stop when he began coughing. He seemed to regain himself for a moment and then doubled over, hacking so violently his legs slowly folded underneath him. He ended up on his hands and knees, finally clearing whatever it was that was choking him and spitting it onto the floor. 
A wad of black horror came loose of his throat, along with something hard and white that skittered across the room. Shit. He rasped, picking up the little white thing. It was a tooth. Gonna fucking run out if this keeps up. I walked over and helped him up, nearly jumping out of my skin when I heard glass break behind me. I turned to see Bobby's hand reaching through the office door's window to unlock it. Now, he said, pulling his hand back. A surgical scalpel was buried in the back of his wrist, so deeply it had passed through to the other side. He sighed and pulled it free, stabbing it into the wooden doorframe and then reaching back inside for the lock. I could hear the man screaming once Bobby walked inside, a loud shrieking that faded to an insane, mumbling whine. Bobby walked back out of the room a moment later, licking the back of his hand and then cracking his neck. He picked up a shard of the glass on the ground and inspected his reflection, tossing the impromptu mirror away when he was finished. Are you okay? He asked Sean. The boy took a deep, painful breath and then shook his head. He was almost completely dead weight by the time I managed to lean him against the wall. His face was covered in sweat. You take a second to rest then, all right? I'm going to leave now, I said. Bobby looked up at me and then at the clinic around us. When you're... When Senator Colon banned me from this place, I figured he might get up to some stupid bullshit. And this takes the cake. He nodded at me. See you around. Sure, I said, turning to leave. I stopped for just a second, glancing at Bobby and Sean and then stepping aside to look into the office. The man in the lab coat was leaned back in a swivel chair by the desk, his face raised to the ceiling. Bloody black holes were all that remained of his eyes and mouth. I thought he was dead until I saw his chest hitch and a spray of dark blood cover his chin. I left in a hurry. Where are you going? Suyin asked when I came upstairs. She followed close behind me poking me in the lower back when I didn't answer and then all but pushing me when I went up the stairs instead of out the front door. Home, I said, sort of. Do not leave me here, Ash, she said. What the fuck were those noises coming from the basement, huh? Did you kill that fucker all over again? What in the fucking fuck was that? A, uh, different guy, I told her continuing up the stairs. She followed all the way to the fourth floor attic. How big is this fucking place? Suyin asked. And don't think I didn't hear that comment about the other guy, whatever the fuck you just said, I just don't want to know. I got my breath in order and continued upstairs, Suyin huffing along behind me. There's another floor? Suyin asked once we were beneath the garret's trap door. This place doesn't look this fucking big from the outside. She took a deep breath. I am sorry for cursing so much, but I am stressed. I am confused, and I did not expect all this shit to happen today. She rubbed her forehead with her hands hard and then turned away from me. I felt for her, 
I really did. Just hang out here for a second, I said. She looked around the dark space with her hands out to the sides, shaking her head. Where the fuck would I go, Ash? She asked. I squeezed her shoulder and climbed the ladder to the garret, breathing a sigh of relief when the trap door flopped open with a smack. I took a look around. Something was wrong with the black windows that normally all but filled the four walls around me. Or, rather, it seemed that nothing was wrong with them. Thousands of tiny pinholes and thin spots in the paint bled light into the room. A long, thick flap crumbled away when I touched the glass, giving me a fairly clear view of the strip through the gray canopies of Old Town's trees. I turned to the desk and shivered. No, I whispered, stepping around the open trapdoor and laying my hands on it. My typewriter, the typewriter. There was almost nothing left of it. It looked like a scorched metal donut. The keys had been burnt and twisted down so that they looked like fungal hairs growing from the surface of the desk. Something had melted it, and I figured I knew what. I stepped back and wiped my hand down the window, feeling the old paint crust and crack and fall away. With the extra light in the room, it wasn't hard to find her, laying dead on the ground beside the desk. The writer... That other version of me I had discovered up here before falling into the rainstorm that had delivered me to Dr. Starling's past. She was as much in ruin as the typewriter. Her eyes, my eyes, were clouded over and sunken from dehydration. Nothing was eating her. No mold, no insects. But her body was all but destroyed. The black stuff that disease the doctor had been cultivating had rotted away her mouth and most of the jawbone. Only the sunken pit of her throat remained. The neck burned away to the spinal cord in places so that she looked like a demented Pez dispenser. This typewriter wasn't mine, I realized, but hers. Then I thought of that third me, Ashley the mother. Mike had been going on about not being able to find their kid. And the child, Emily... Hadn't shown up before, during, or after her father's murder. I looked down at the floor, remembering that same trap door and ladder collapsing under a deluge of acidic vomit. The same stuff that had for sure destroyed the typewriter on the desk. I strained my ears for any hint of keys falling, but I could hear nothing. I sighed and knelt down over the dead and rotted me. Her hair was fully gray, and she even seemed a touch older. Given that her face was mostly destroyed, I couldn't tell if she had that same tightness to the skin the scars had given me. I took a breath and put my hand in her hair, feeling back along her scalp. Nothing. Not even the slightest bump. This version of me had never kicked Mike off his bike on a frozen mountain road. Never had the blacktop fracture her skull and shred her scalp to ribbons. I thought of those visions of my possible pasts I had been given, all those possible threads where I hadn't fought back, or where I'd fought back and lost anyway. I swallowed, 
feeling suddenly very sad. I took the dead Mee's hand and ran my fingers over her knuckles. Then I set the hand in her lap and climbed back downstairs. What? Suyin asked me. What's up there? Did you did you do something? I shook my head. Then can we leave? Yeah, I said. We can go. I found Bobby standing alone in the central hall when we made it back downstairs. He was staring at the grand tile mosaic with a grimace. I thought for a moment that his teeth were maybe too numerous, too thin and too sharp, but it was nothing more than a trick of the light. He looked at us as we approached. Where's Sean? I asked. He took a deep breath and said nothing for a long while. That boy? Suyin asked. He looks sick. Is he okay? No, Bobby said, looking at his hand. He turned to Suyin. I'm sorry, but you have to stay in town now. Everybody does. Worst case scenario now is just making sure this place is a well-sealed tomb. He spat on the mosaic. Fuck! He hissed. Hey, I said. I'd been thinking about that dead woman's constant urging whenever the space between us got thin enough. The artist, she'd said. I needed to find the artist, whoever the fuck that was. Unless it had been staring me in the face since before all of this even started. I thought of Mike's red tie bound in my hand, and the bloody rag covering Mr. Cutting's face that I'd snapped Coraline in the eye with. Red as that cloth held high in the painting that had brought her well and full into this house. The poisoned muse. What? Bobby asked. Do you know anything about paintings? I replied. Not really, he said. Why? I described the raft of the Medusa, the colors of the scene, and the red rag held over the rescue lantern. Bobby's eyes widened in recognition before I'd finished, and it was honestly the most shocked I'd ever seen him. He led us through Old Town toward the big house at the end of the street. My own home in this odd section of gun cotton was large, but the big house was something else entirely. It seemed partly carved from the mountain behind it, two sweeping wings that stretched away into the gray canopies. The road leading to it opened into a broad cul-de-sac bordered by trees and the same crooked wrought iron fencing as everywhere else in the neighborhood. The only thing breaking up the massive circle of bricks was a large central fountain carved to look like thousands of birds erupting from the ground. Save for a nasty scorch mark covering the base of it, the thing was flawlessly beautiful. We entered through a set of heavy, wooden double doors that seemed to just barely fill the arched throat of the house. Suyin followed close behind me, and I was honestly glad she'd come along. 
Bobby's reaction to the Medusa had given me some hope, but the big house almost overpowered that. I didn't feel well being there, as though I was in terrible danger just walking through the front door. The interior was hard gray stone polished to a sheen that might have glimmered if there had been enough light in the place. Electric bulbs produced a flickering yellow glow from their sconces on the high walls. Most of the ground is little more than shadow. It's not normally like this, Bobby said, answering questions I hadn't asked. That's nice to hear, Suyin said in a flat voice. The whole time we walked, I could hear the barest trace of other people in the house. Children, mostly. The step and squeak of kids running around in the upper floors. We never saw anybody else, however. Though I did notice many of the rooms we walked by seemed to be classrooms. We even passed what looked like a daycare. Is this a school? Suyin asked for me. Yeah, Bobby said rounding a corner. We had been walking straight into the building the entire time, and I realized we'd have to be under the mountain now, though it seemed like we were still inside the regular building. For who? Suyin asked. Where are the kids? I sent the ones who weren't sick away, Bobby said. The others are... quarantined. Sent them away? I asked. I thought you said people couldn't leave town. And they didn't. He almost snapped the answer at me, but I could tell he held himself back at the last second. Here we are. We stopped in front of an ornately carved door he unlocked with a heavy-looking skeleton key. He stepped inside and we followed, Suyin moving in ahead of me. At some point, her curiosity had begun to overpower her nervousness, and now I was the one lagging behind. The half a second I spent in that dark, lonely hallway awaiting my turn to go through the door sent chills up my spine. Holy shit, Su Yin whispered. I had nearly the same reaction when I stepped inside. The room was a private library, and a massive one at that. The space felt and looked much larger inside than the door leading to it suggested. I found myself craning my neck like a kid on a field trip. There were new books, betrayed by their colorful paper spines, but most of the racks were full of what I could only think of as tomes. Fat, leather-bound things ranging in color from black to burgundy, their titles and golden scrollwork. Su Yin poked her head into aisle after aisle, clasping her hands behind the small of her back to keep herself from touching anything. The place did feel more like a museum than a library, and I similarly kept my hands to myself as I followed Bobby toward the back of the room. Back here somewhere, he said. This is where he kept all the paintings. Who? I asked. My grandfather, he said. All this is his collection. He must have had some good taste, Suyin said. I actually recognize a few of these, and they are really, really hard to find. He was an asshole, Bobby said. He'd gone through a low arch into part of the room that traded bookshelves for low glass counters and wooden racks full of old, glitzy trinkets and baubles. 
things like antique swords and pistols, but even more esoteric stuff like bottles and plates and riding utensils. But yeah, he liked to keep shit. Don't touch anything. I won't, I said, looking through one of the glass cases where the only thing on display was a piece of an ancient wooden plank. It was covered in something that looked like strands of rotten black seaweed, though as I watched they seemed to shift. It might have been an effect of the warped glass, but I didn't think so. A handwritten note in the bottom of the case read simply, From the wreck of the golden fist, a gift, 1911. Here we are, Bobby said. I tracked his voice through the stacks of the collection. I felt my heart flutter when I saw it. It was the raft of the Medusa. Not the real one that I had seen in Boulder that first time nearly a year ago, but the subtly different recreation unveiled on the doctor's dinner table. I shivered looking at it, wanting to approach but staying my hand. Now what? Bobby asked. I shrugged. I... Touch it, I guess, I said. That worked last time. I walked forward and placed my fingers on the edge of the frame. The wood was slightly warm and light-feeling, hard but hollow, like an igneous rock. My fingers crept upward to rest on the brush strokes at the very bottom of the canvas. I felt an electric tingle along my spine, but nothing else. Anything? Bobby asked. I shook my head and turned around, nearly falling when I saw the man behind him. It was him, Mr. Compson. Bobby gave me a look and then turned to see what had scared me. He saw Compson inside. My grandfather, he said, turning back to me. Are you okay? I didn't answer his question, just looked at the painting. The man was sitting in a black wooden chair in the dark, fire lighting his face. He had a light smile, but I didn't like the cast of his eyes. Things seemed coiled in the shadows behind the chair. Bobby looked at the painting. It makes my skin crawl, too, he said. Same, Suyin offered. What are we doing here? Your friend can answer that, I hope, Bobby said, turning back to me. Ash? Mrs. Littletree, is there something here you're looking for? I stared at him harder. His voice seemed a touch distant. Electric, even, like the distortion from a guitar amp. Ah? Suyin said. What are you doing? Why are you just standing there? I felt it then, a rising energy blanketing the floor from beneath. It crept up from the ground the way you can feel the subway rolling under you sometimes in Manhattan. It got into my ankles and then it was creeping up my legs. The frame around Compson's painting dissolved. Or, rather, it was never there. Just the image of him floating in the dark. Shadows twitched and uncoiled behind him, moving into the light where they shone with faint purple iridescence a soft indigo that I realized was the true source of the light in the painting. These fat, whitish appendages rolled into and out of view over his shoulders. 
The man himself didn't move, but I felt I could see the corners of his mouth twitching higher. Electricity, so brilliant it was painful, burst into place in my mind and rolled through my skull. I shuddered when it passed through my eyes and lay burning in the air before me. Striking blue brilliance that tore me open to be outside, resting just in front of me. The heat of it pushed into my skin. I could hear it smoking. Then Bobby moved, seeming to glow himself. A red smear in a canvas of mixed indigo hues. He turned to the painting and then to me. Two green orbs burning in his skull like streetlights in the morning fog. He reached out and grabbed my head, turning me with such force I felt the bones in my neck shifting and popping, almost breaking. The raft of the Medusa loomed over me. Gone, too, was its frame. Actually, it was moving, a flat and listless raft alone on a roaring ocean. Clouds overhead carried the thread of the last strong gust that would push down and drown them all. Damn the sacrifices, the horrid choices they had to make to get to this point. The cannibalism and the slow deaths. The rot. The swelling. It would drown them just as sure as if they had never left the Medusa at all. I raised a shaking hand to the painting and felt the tears in my eyes. They were doomed. Even if that distant light was a saving vessel, they were already dead. They were none of them safe from the Reaper. Not in truth. Madam? He said, touching my wrist gently and leading me away from the painting the way he had all those times before. I felt myself again. I was myself again. Though I had taken on a passenger as I looked at the Medusa. I could feel her reeling about in my head bouncing off the walls like a mouse trapped in a box. Madam, he repeated, now looping one of his gentle, long-fingered hands around my back and turning me toward my chair. An artist can only expect so much adoration, I'm afraid. I looked at him and he smiled at me. Despite my condition, he seemed so much worse. His skin was drawn and the flesh had sunken around his eye sockets. Still, Despite the consumption, his gaze was bright and attentive. He had an artist's searching eyes. I am so sorry, Master Jericho, I said. My bones were little more than a bare frame for the sheer and ancient flesh that covered them, but I was still more healthy than this poor, talented, dying man guiding me back to my chair. The painting calls to me so. I am sorry. Yes, yes, he said, lowering me carefully. I do not mind, not even a handful of the models I've had to deal with in my life has been as well-behaved as you, and not a one of them had such interesting distractions. He hobbled back to his stool and easel. Were you dealing with the memories of the poor departed souls of the sunken Medusa again? He asked casually as he got back to outlining my face in chalk. He took a long look at me and then at his easel, making no marks with the crumb of pink in his hand until he was sure of himself. That surety came, passed, came again, and then he was idly scraping at the topmost piece of the stretched parchment. Incredible, 
he said to himself. You know, Marguerite, there is no end to the mysteries of this world. He looked hard at me and then at the drawing before him. What of it he'd managed to draw during his brief time with me? It had been his fourth such visit in less than a month, and each time the result had been much the same. Is it different again? I asked, nodding. I knew it would be, because it always was. Most assuredly, he said with a laugh. He cocked his head and then looked at me. I have to wonder if you've struck me down with some vicious sort of mesmerism, madam. He pointed to the page and then knuckled some sweat off his forehead. It was not terribly warm, but the poor man could never stop sweating. He was always pallid and flecked with sweat. Even in the span of a month, I could tell his spine had bent some more because of the disease eating away at it. Possibly soon he would be bedridden, and people would treat him no differently than they treated me. I don't believe you'd ever be mistaken for such a swarthy fellow, he said, turning the easel to me. I could see my own face buried in the heart of his mistakes, both the most recent and the many preceding that had left a cloud of loose color, almost like a beatification, about this most recent visage. But the face that he would most clearly see, and that anybody who would view this picture would see, was that of the dark-skinned Moroccan man who had lived inside me for the moment Master Jericho had been drawing. I don't believe so either, I said. Despite my condition, I knew my own face as well as anybody. I had a simple mirror for washing and, in my youth, had seen my own face in the streams behind our house south of Mienne-et-Loire. I still lived in that house now, which was large, if empty and thankfully my brother was still around to take care of me. Jericho smiled. I felt this new passenger, this woman, move suddenly, as though she were a child pressing against the windows of my eyes to get a better look at him. Are you acquainted? I asked her. Her thoughts were not the memories of the dead, so stricken through with pain and regret I could barely think. No, she was something new to me even in my old age a fresh soul come to roost in my mind like a bird. No, 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 she said, in that way of spirits. But I could see there was more to the no than that. She was afraid, but in control of her fear, cautious more like, and oddly familiar with the arrangement she'd found herself in. Are you a mad woman, spirit? I asked her. To my surprise, she laughed. Yes, 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 she said. Yes, yes, yes. Her cheer at the forwardness of the question was so powerful I found myself laughing along. Jericho paused his erasures and looked at me. Another one? He asked, and I nodded. But different this time, I said. How? She asked. She isn't dead, I said, answering so both might hear. Or, at least, she doesn't have the feel of death on her. Jericho raised a quizzical eyebrow. Oh, can you speak with her still? Jericho asked. I thought a medium could only speak to the dead. But we are speaking, Master Jericho, I said. I thought the comment would catch the odd bit of laughter out of his throat, but 
It seemed to simply make him sad. Is she in France? He asked. No, I said, relaying on her behalf as I had for much of my life, at least whenever anybody believed me enough to speak through me. Even my own brother, faithful as he was to me, only partially believed in the voices my condition brought to my mind. He was too afraid to have me explore this affliction outside a close circle of trusted friends. Times had matured enough to mostly inoculate against a fear of witchcraft, which I didn't practice in the least. I, too, wasn't responsible for this thing I couldn't help but do. It was a curse I'd carried since birth, like children whose bones warped in the years before adolescence. Where is she, then? Perhaps the Orient? He asked questions as he drew, looking over my face with soft eyes. I knew he was hardly trying anymore. His sickness had robbed him of all but his last days and the final drops of energy needed to move those talented fingers. This was an exercise set up between a friend of my brother's and one of Jericho's benefactors. The belief was that speaking with me might return some hope to the ailing painter's heart in his last days. But Jericho wasn't in need of hope. He seemed, in fact, quite at peace. In the New World, actually, I told him. America. How interesting, he said. His concentration was on the page before him. He could care less about the conversation we were almost having. She says she knows you, I said. Oh? She needs your help, in fact, I said. The woman was becoming incomprehensible. My idle chat with the master wasn't fast enough for her taste. I sighed and got to the point. She is curious to know about a poisoned muse? Jericho stopped drawing and looked at me intently. I'm sorry, he said in a soft voice. His eyes were alarmed. Could you repeat that? I did, and he stood quite slowly hobbling to the window and tapping the glass a few times with his knuckle. Then he returned, dragging his easel much closer to me. He took my hand and squeezed my fingers, shaking the arm slightly. Can you hold on to her as long as possible? He asked. Hold on, sir. Keep her within you for as long as you can? He clarified. I took a breath and shrugged. I suppose she'll linger so long as she desires, I said. And I'll do what I can to help her stay, but she doesn't want to leave. She is quite urgently asking questions in my head. Please, just do your best, Jericho said. I nodded and he began to draw and speak. When I was a younger man, I heard a story about a shipwreck. The entire country, the world, really. All heard the same story, tragedy, death. But I knew there was something more to it. Also, I needed something incredible to paint for my debut, but that wasn't the most of what I wanted to take from this thing that happened. He pulled the stretched bit of parchment off the easel and held it to either side of my face, cocking his head back and forth. He found something in this satisfactory and continued... I remember thinking that it wasn't enough to simply 
get something out, you know? He said. They do that, these historical painters. They strike when the iron's hottest and, and damn the result. He sighed. I wanted it to be as perfect, as awful to see as the nightmares I had about it when I slept. I tell you, sometimes I would be having lunch with friends in Paris and I would suddenly taste the sea salt air. My toes would curl in my shoes trying to inch away from the water creeping up the deck toward me. He had stopped painting and was holding his hand up, looking at a place just beyond his fingers, over my shoulder. I took a page from da Vinci and began to study the dead. He continued. I would bring home heads and arms and all sorts of things from where I could get them. Ghastly, I know, but to be honest to the dead, I had to know them. And so I brought these dead things into my life, into my home, and lived with them. I painted them, sketched them. My friends all thought I was mad, of course. He laughed. That's when I began to see her. He said, Beautiful. Glowing. Always just out of the corner of my eye. I pursued her once in a market while hunting for fresh pigment, and finally, she let me catch her. Let me see her more closely. He shifted the leg of the easel with his foot and began to attack the page with alternating strokes, cutting hard lines with the chalk and then fading them out. She was not a real thing, so much as a living bit of sfumato. He said, At times it was like she was a stain on the walls in the rooms where I found her the way an errant bit of shine will toss a reflection into the dark where it doesn't belong. His eyes were serious. The poisoned muse, he said to himself. I began to call her that because she had no name. But even in our earliest days together, I knew that's what she was. It was never she who made the decisions. Always that was me but she could press an idea into your hand like an ill-gotten coin and always when you are most likely to spend it. When I said to myself, surely the pallor of this torso is foul enough, it was she that suggested another trip to the body man. It was me who went, of course, who hauled foul and consumptive corpses into my home to sketch and study with a bit of rag and roses over my face to keep out the smell. It did little good. Almost nothing at all, in fact. Every doctor I've spoken to agrees it was probably in that time where this damnable consumption first set itself into me. He smiled and flipped the easel toward me. Done. There she was. My new passenger. A woman perhaps thirty years my younger, with unfashionable hair oddly patterned with white in the shape of a fishnet along the side of her head. I felt a great deal of relief when she saw those pale and interlocking stripes. And this must have shown on my face, because Jericho made note of it. It looks nothing like you, of course. But is she impressed? He asked. Quite, I said. He nodded and raised his hands to erase the portrait again, but then decided against it. Instead, he took it from the easel and set it carefully in a leather satchel. Then I suppose somebody should be satisfied with it, he said. 
He took up a flask and a rag he had earlier set aside and cleaned the chalk from his hands. He sat, thinking, for quite a while in this well-lit room of my brother's house. Outside, I could hear our neighbor shepherding his flock back home from the western pasture. The sky was darkening ahead of coming rain. I could feel it in my knees. Is she still there? He asked. I nodded. (sighs) The muse is a winsome sort, but also fickle and needy and, most importantly, quite disloyal. He said, You'll see her resting inside your desires. Sometimes she's a gentle glow and others, she's the entirety of a person. She is always yours if you can see her, but she will not remain yours forever. Her desire is desire, and then satisfaction again and again. He stood and walked to the replica of the raft of the Medusa on the wall. It was considerably smaller than the original. When I began to bore her, when my passions waned, she started to look to my friends and contemporaries. He said, I couldn't fathom her plans for them, but I knew the illness that had taken me was the price I paid for dealing with her. I figured she would spread like a wildfire through Paris if I let her get away from me, so I locked her away in a painting. My only concern is that she went willingly. It was all too easy. The sky broke overhead and rain began to sound on the roof. Jericho looked up. The wrong sort of inspiration always does the worst sort of damage. He said, I was merely a painter and so the most she could get out of me was a painting. Oh, she wanted more. He turned to me, a quizzical look on his face. Does the rain sound off? clasped my hands over my ears as the noise grew to incomprehensible levels. I could feel my head pounding, almost splitting even, as the sound became harsher and more mechanical. It was like a thousand rusty scissors cutting through the fabric of reality itself. I felt that cloth unmoor from itself, twisting and binding into cords that wove and wrapped around my head, dragging me back, back. I pulled my aching hands away from the typewriter and stood, stumbling backward into the garret. The translucent windows surged with electric cloud forms. I felt that energy trickling into the space around me and running over my body. It was there. Then it was fading, along with the noise of the typewriter. I looked at the desk and saw a hundred little afterimages of myself, all slightly misaligned but coming together. Then all of them were jumping out of their chairs and stumbling into me. The lot of us tripped and fell through the trap door as one.
Coming up on Scars in Time. Ash accomplishes the tasks set to her by her other self, the writer, only to find the woman miserably dead beside a destroyed typewriter in the garret. Ash has found the painting, has spoken with the artist, and has discovered how the poisoned muse came to haunt the doctor and her. But these are only the steps that lead to the end. Now Ash must come face to face with the person she's most afraid of, most disgusted by, and most ashamed of, herself. I hope you'll join us next episode for Scars in Time, Chapter 19, The Auction. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2021, WSF Productions, LLC. This March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, 
West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.